This podcast is sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ACIST has been the Society for Information Professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information. By the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. In a panel discussion entitled Practical Prototyping, Todd Zaki-Warfel, Chris Connolly, Anders Ramsey, and Jed Wood discuss various methods for prototyping with a focus on why we don't prototype in software as often as we should, and why we really should be doing it more. This podcast begins shortly into the start of the discussion. My apologies to the panel and our listeners for this edit. There were many rooms to run to during the summit in order to share these podcasts with the global community. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. We had her over and did a, here's like some other screens. So we had them over for a full day and did like some live sketching with them. So we had built some personas. We took those dashboards that she actually put together to, con to communicate concepts, and we had a discussion around each of those dashboards. She'd bring them up. We put the personas up on the wall and said, okay, now walk me through for that screen, you know, what was in the person's mind, what brought you to those sketches and concepts. And then we literally, you know, for us, started prototyping right there on a big sheet of paper on the wall, sketching through a bunch of different screens, um, you know, sketched out some little, like, Ajax transitioning things, and then went from there into, uh, let's see, which one is it? Something like this. So this is actually our prototype. Now, it looks nothing like the original piece, but the idea behind it is, hey, here's like there's some little program dashboard thing here. And speaking of the, the tool sets, um, you know, these use existing tool sets for uh, prototyping Scriptaculous that, you know, we can now show the transitions rather than actually describe them. So a lot of it is kind of taking their piece to communicate, and then we just kind of iterate on that and, and kind of keep going. I just want to build on this notion of uh, using prototypes, having your clients prototype. So go to uh, the slide that has the two guys. Yeah, the one you were just on, the two guys. This is a big part of our practice right now, um, whether we're working on new services, new products, um, or new uh, uh, information systems. Uh, and this is a fairly old photo. Oh, go back. No, that was a perfect one. Oh, there it is. Okay. So what do you see in this photo? Um, you see a lot of work has been done in a collaborative way with the client. When we first started doing this, all the designers and kind of uh, people who, are, who make things are in some ways they, they laugh, you know, uh, they made it in PowerPoint, we all kind of chuckle. But prototyping is a great vehicle for communication for your clients to, to map their experience to what they think they may need. And so it's not about the prototypes being the final thing, but it's a completely different way to communicate with them. So this is a business development uh, gentleman who's going to take this new printer platform out on the road to Europe and Asia to show their biggest customers, UPS, FedEx, et cetera, and an electrical engineer. And they're debating how this new printer platform, now this is a physical product, how this should come together. And we provided them the kind of 
individual pieces, and there's five other teams in that afternoon working on prototypes like this. And again, we, they go out and have this, uh, this prototyping session about an hour and kind of debate, and we come back, and there's five to seven prototypes that now the big group discusses. And it's not to ask which ones of those is the right idea. It's to get them in a cross-disciplinary session to actually discuss and debate the issues of the design and what's needed. Oh, we've got a couple questions. Um, when you're developing an interactive prototype for testing, can you talk about the, uh, what are the, um, the best practices for not leading the user or introducing bias? And just as an example, uh, you know, you, usually when you do a prototype for testing, you can't, not everything works. You can't get all the content in there, you know, so how do you avoid those problems? So um, we were doing some uh, work for Install Shield uh, on some of their new products. And I've always taken the, the viewpoint that uh, usability or at least initial testing of whether this product is actually working for the user or not doesn't have to be a big secret test like make sure there is absolutely no bias. The facilitation of that test is a big uh, uh, kind of lever in getting learning from it. So we would... We always make sure that the user knows what we're about to do with them. We tell them that this is a prototype and not everything will work. And you build some things in there that give them a very simple, this area not working and then it goes away, right? Or you can just sit there with them and facilitate it. But I think treating them, treating these things as clinical experiments actually takes the meaning out of them. And by working with the user and asking them what they're hearing, what they're looking, what they're looking for, while they're using some of these early prototypes or, or usability, you get a lot of information from them just by being empathetic and walking through in a facilitative manner what they're searching for. Now, that's very different if you're doing large scale, is this button in the right place on this site that's almost complete and are people going to find it? That's a very different test than uh, kind of 12 to 15 people walking through alternative options of how that downloading in this case could occur and what they're seeing. Just asking the the user, what do you see, is a huge revelation. Because everybody working on the project already knows where everything is. And just to hear a naive voice telling you what's there helps, um, uh, helps learning. The whole notion of treating it clinically is, is takes, the, takes the learning out of it. Um, so, so just really quick, I think one thing, uh, one of the best ways to address that really is there's a piece that comes before that, which is planning out what your prototype's going to be. Um, and we've been fortunate slash unfortunate to have done testing on some prototypes that were, I mean, almost, I've seen some of the, some of the sickest fully built out prototypes that are, you know, with fake data using XML files versus database stuff that are extremely Ajax rich, drag and drop, resorting, amazing stuff. And then you come in and they want you to test it and they want you to test like six features. So they spent nine months building this thing. They want us to test six features. Um, so part of it really is, before you even get to that point, is you know, we've got prototypes can be a communication tool. They can be a, a testing tool. It's really you know, deciding what the prototype needs to be first. So before you go out and build this entire thing, if you know you want to test a few concepts, just build that much of the prototype. That's all you need to build. build. And if, you're, you know, if you've got a good facilitator or if you are a good facilitator, yeah, like Chris said, just be upfront with them and say, look, this is a prototype. Um, that does a couple things. Sets the stage for their expectation that not everything is going to work, that, oh, it's a prototype, it's a little sketchy, 
that's great because now I can actually give feedback and maybe you'll take my feedback you know, and advice. Um, if it's really, really well fleshed out, you run the risk of them going, well, it's already, all the decisions have been made, so, you know, what's the point? Um, but initially, you'll make sure that before you build a prototype, kind of decide what the goal is. Is it a marketing tool? Is it going to be thrown away? Does it need to be redone for, for production? That has a lot of implications on what your actual prototype is going to be. Um, and then from a moderation standpoint, yeah, just let them know that it's a prototype. Some things won't work. When you get down that path where we hit something that's not going to work, I might let you go for a little ways, uh, but then I'll let you know and we'll bring you back in. And a lot of times what we'll do, like when I'm moderating a session like that, they get to the section that isn't hooked up, and I just ask them, so that part's not hooked up, but if it were, why don't you walk me through how you would expect that to actually work? And then you get some really good design ideas from people. Um, if you want to go back to the slide of the dashboard that your um, MBA person gave for you, um, it kind of actually struck a nerve for me because at one point I was tasked in SAIC to um, prototype for a war room for a really high up director of a um, program that was for deconstructing the mustard gas weapons. And he wanted a war room dashboard that pretty much he could check in a second every day because he was so busy um, with getting the information feed and wanting to know just this high level, um, is this good, is this not good, red light, green light, stop. And um, I had to do it in SharePoint and I didn't have the, the access or capability to the higher up person. And he was like, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna know anything except for what this war room dashboard provides. So have you ever been in that kind of situation where you, you don't even have access to the end user because they're so high up and you don't, it's just kind of like working in a void as far as um, the impracticality of what they're asking for you and the type of solution you need to give. What do you guys want to, yeah. Oh, well, uh, we were, I mean, there's a big problem in corporations of what we call managing up. And you hear from everybody who's on the team what the other people are expecting. And so, We've, it happens all the time, and I think it's just a, I think you, first of all, you need to recognize that it's, that it's happening, which is terribly painful while you're in it, because you just don't feel like you have any good information. Um, I think the other thing is it, it tests your mettle whether you're going to stand, whether you're going to draw, you know, a line in the sand um, and say, look it, if we want this done right, we need some information on what the, what the person on the other line is expecting. And so I would start more less forcefully and start saying, is there anybody else who has, who knows the type of information that this uh, person wants? And can I sit with them and, and can we do a little mock-up and get some feedback? The most important aspect is getting some feedback outside of your own head. And so you could even mock something up without much information, but you've got to get, like, the secretary, the assistant, the, the person that's trying to make their way up the corporate ladder who generally understand and put them in front of it even though they're not the same person. It's got to be from their organization and you got to get that external feedback. But yeah, that happens all the time and it's totally horrible. Okay. Um, hi, I work um, for a company that makes medical products and a lot of our products then have software that's embedded in some type of box or something. So I'm not dealing with web and right now what we've been doing is creating flash prototypes and putting them on like a laptop and then connecting something via USB or running it to a touch screen. But I would love to be able to put, run this flash prototype to some type of small screen and put it in like a foam core box 
or something. Do you have any suggestions? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> this was uh, a large consumer electronics company that I worked for. Um, yeah, we can't name. Yeah, and unnamed. And this was an extremely complex um, car infotainment system. So it had in it um, DVD player, TV tuner, full navigation system, Bluetooth phone, hard drive music, and iPod connection. I'll just flip through some of the other ones really quick. So it went to the level of uh, we, we had provided a whole bunch of snippets of real radio stations, real TV stations, the first 10 minutes of the Matrix DVD, so that when you interacted with this thing, it was, it was as real as it could get, but was still on a computer. And uh, yeah, all in flash. So similar to some of the things you've already hinted at, what, what we did was um, got some of the engineers, and that's maybe one good tip, is just you know, getting those real, quote, real developers that are doing the real thing to help you out. I mean, they, they love little side projects like this usually anyway, and say, you know, we need to take the exact same screen that's in that car stereo and somehow get it running on our desktop. And so we you know, mounted it on some little plastic stand and somebody else was able to find this adapter that, that worked from DVI to that thing. And so we could definitely save a lot of, and we did save a lot of churn back and forth by first seeing, oh shoot, that, that color doesn't show up on the screen like we thought it would or the size is too big. Onto that yeah, right out of the computer onto that screen. And then we had some, uh, another set of engineers that developed some knobs that were USB driven and one of, the, one of the tricks of the system is it's not, it's not a touch screen. And so we, we really had to make the interactions with the knobs and buttons be um, as, as elegant as possible. And then the knob has a, a built-in proximity sensor. So as you reach for it, the screen you know, changes or whatever. So they, they built these little, um, we call them the knobulators, little USB-driven um, knobs that had a proximity sensor in it and everything. And so it, it really helped get at a vast majority of the design and interaction issues, and it was only when we got to questions of, okay, what about when you're driving down the road at 200 miles an hour, how's this gonna work? Or, you know, what happens when sunlight comes through the window or whatever? So, I mean, obviously, it t couldn't take you all the way, but we got, we got really far answering some questions just by, you know, hooking up and hacking things around. I, I don't know if that helps for your specific situation other than, you know, try to get engineers involved with you. I think the other thing is, Jed made a point earlier about the uh, technology and cost of these tools coming completely down. Um, in the physical space, there's a ton of little kits that are coming out in the market that are microprocessor-based kits, screen-based kits. If you search, um, there's a bunch of stuff that you can now hook up to Flash. It used to be tough. Basic Stamp was the one that everybody's been using for a long time uh, to prototype uh, little electronic products. But there's way more uh, hardware-based um, prototyping kits available now. Um, one, and one of the languages that's one of the hot new languages is called processing. And I haven't looked at it yet, but MIT and uh, our school, IIT, is starting to work with those. And a lot of designers who are working across physical and uh, digital spaces are, are, are starting to use those things. But start looking at some of these hardware kits. Um, and actually, paper is a fantastic tool. Cheapest, fastest, um, and you'd be surprised. I've taught a paper prototyping workshop a number of times, and you'd be surprised that we can actually simulate a lot of this stuff with paper uh, just by, you know, like, you make a little cutout for the screen, and you might just sketch out a couple different storyboards of it. 
you make a slot in the top and the bottom, and literally as somebody's interacting with it, you just slide the paper up and down. So you can, you can simulate a lot of this interactivity, and before you even jump into code or commit to, like, Photoshop or Fireworks or any of that, literally just get, like, the basic fundamental interactions. Does this actually make sense, or are we heading down the wrong path? You can do that in – I ran a, a workshop at, at the uh, IXDA thing uh, was a month and a half ago or whatever, um, and it was progressive. It took uh, half a day or whatever. But uh, for each little session, these guys, we gave them a challenge. They had less than five minutes to build the thing collaboratively as a team. And some of this stuff were like, you know, Ajax transitions between screens. We did a, a photo carousel under five minutes. And, in fact, for the photo carousel, I gave them five and halfway through cut it to four. They completely freaked out. But you know what? Eight teams, all eight teams at the end of four minutes had a fully functional paper prototype of a photo carousel that worked. And the whole point behind that was it's, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of time and effort, and you can get the basic fundamental interactions down and see if you're heading down the right path or not. I just want to emphasize real quick here that kind of spirit of the build, uh, which is so important to prototyping. If you approach prototyping as kind of, again, this clinical, what must we build and how will it be used by, and you get into the spirit of let's crank something out, that's, very, that's a very design-oriented culture. Or, and to build that into your team and give them a space and to give them a constraint and a deadline really drives some amazing work. And so just that culture, that environment that you set up can affect how well you do this and how surprised people are when something gets built very quickly. Makingthings.com is one of the good sites to go to for these hardware flash stuff, just as a side note. So one of the uh, concerns about prototyping is that it locks you into a direction, right? All of a sudden, you're, you're building this thing, and you're not testing out completely different ideas. Are you guys using prototypes in a more ideation phase where you're, you're actually building completely separate designs simultaneously? And if so, how do you evaluate the different ideas you have? And then at what point do you start to gravitate towards something more solid? So, I mean, I see it as being you have sort of an evolution of the prototyping or in the design phase. There's an element early on, you have more of a conceptual prototype that is intentionally maybe more sketch-like, more just had less crisp and, does, and, and really invites, um, you know, encourages those who are stakeholders or those who are viewing it to, you know, provide feedback and, and be open to a variety of, of design changes. But ultimately, as you are moving forward um, and as the, you know, you have to make, you're making design choices, um, at that point, you, you do need to constrain yourself, or you are, you, have, you are inherently creating constraints because your design has evolved and you've decided to go down a certain path. And at that point, um, you know, there really needs to be, you, you can't go back and say, oh, well, let's go off in this totally other different direction. Um, actually, yeah, if you could pull up the uh, tracking manager one. This speaks a little bit to that. This is something that is, actually, this is not the one that's up already. It's actually... Um, a different one, but this speaks to something where we were we were a little ways along uh, in the time process, but this is all something that is a design of an update to an existing uh, um, product uh, okay okay uh, so for this for the basic to set this up a little bit, we um, build and 
Okay. Um, what were we talking about? No. Uh, I don't know how to use prototyping any other way than to explore multiple alternatives, which I think you need to underline as a key principle of prototyping. The whole idea is you build different things. If you're building one at a time, you're falling into that trap of trying to get it right. And so, first of all, you have to build at least two things, but you should build three to five things that are, you try to be as different as you can in the approach early on in this conceptual side. And then the, the, the other thing about prototyping is you make, you make decisions based on the experience and the feel of it rather than you're thinking about it. An idea prototyped is very different than an idea described. Those are two different things. And so make multiples and you get to make decisions based on, on the feel or the experience, which is what you're trying to design. So this is not, this is just a little bit of a, not really responding to the original question of uh, how do we, you know, encourage openness and going off in different directions, but it is, uh, this is a prototype um, for somebody to allow somebody to search uh, records in a, it's in a sales and tracking system. And uh, originally for this prototype, the assumption had been coming from the business that they only needed to type in uh, just a year. So we did not have these little, yeah, we didn't have those, which don't click on it yet, so we can show it in a minute. So initially we assumed um, that we thought, well, you know, they're just typing in a year, so it doesn't really make sense to have a date picker because it's just going to take, you know, takes less time to just type in, you know, 0807 or whatever uh, than actually going in and clicking on a date picker. But as they were sitting and looking at it, and then we were discussing it with them, and they were like, you know what, we have to actually have to do the entire thing. We need the, the year, uh, month, and day. So during this meeting with them, um, actually I went away for by me like an hour, went online, grabbed a date picker, which is this guy right here, and we, we added it, and then we were able to have a very detailed conversation about date pickers. Now, certainly, showing them a date picker obviously is going to constrain the design someone. It's going to set them up, you know, they're going to look at that and respond to that design rather than thinking out of the box and some, you know, totally uh, innovative way of doing date pickers. But assuming that, you know, we're not necessarily going to be designing some totally out of the box thing and we maybe are somewhat constrained, within that, rather than me going off and specking a date picker or having my little library of date pickers, what I did, I went online and I found the most recent, you know, most kind of modern date picker that is sort of out there today, at least, you know, based on what, what we're able to find and doing some, a very short amount of research. So the point, the larger point I'm making here, one larger point I'm making is with this model of prototyping, XHTML, CSS prototyping, it's like you're basically using the web itself as your resource. So this was a question of this date picker, I just added essentially just a, a, a class name to this input field and you know added the, the, had to add the JavaScript and so forth. And it took the whole thing, the research, from actually going out and finding it to actually being implemented and show it to the client took about an hour. So time is obviously a huge factor with prototyping. It's, it's one of the kind of cornerstones of what makes prototyping uh, so important and so valuable because obviously if this had taken me a week to do, who cares? At that point, we could have built a day picker, so it's not really relevant. It's all about 
there's a question, there's a need, we have an idea, and we can respond very quickly, and either we can say, no, we're gonna go in a different direction, or yes, let's move forward in this other direction. Here's one other example really quick. This, and this kind of gets to the heart of um, like, you know, your customer, your client telling you what they want versus you kind of listening to that and going, well, that's not what you're saying you want, but here's my translation or understanding of what you mean by that. So this is um, a, uh, an account setup application for City. And um, in discussions with the implementation managers to set up these programs, you know, they, they have all these fees. It gets really kind of hairy, but in, in short, they have all these fees that are associated with how a different program is set up. And the implementation managers said that, you know, we want all these fields for all these different fees always exposed on the screen at all times. So they can go through and basically just whip right through all the fields, which completely makes sense, except for the fact that the default setup doesn't have all these extra fees and these extra things. So we started talking to them and, okay, well I understand you say you, you want these fees exposed. Um, in, the last, in the last month, how many of these programs have you set up? Oh, about 32. And of those 32, how many have had these extra grace periods and extra fees? Well, none, but that's not the point. Okay, well, what if instead we give you a model that basically has just the stuff that you're normally gonna have on there exposed, right? And so now you've got this much to deal with on the screen. You'll be able to fly right through it. But let's say you've got some grace period. You've got a grace period for this account manage maintenance fee details thing. And we give you one touch access just to kind of highlight it. So we pitched this to the product manager and she was like, oh, they're not going to go for that. So what we did, we literally built two versions of this page. One with everything totally exposed and one where we had this little, you know, Ajax transition toggle show hide stuff. And I gave it to her and said, let them play around with it for two days. Let me know after they use it for two days, which one they prefer. And every single one of them came back and said, this is the right method to use because we like how clean it is. We like the fact the screen doesn't look cluttered, but the times when we need access to that, boom, it's one touch away. And honestly, at the same time, they liked how it was kind of sexy when it kind of slides in and slides out. So that was kind of another. And this, this took maybe, we built one page. It took us less than an hour to build the other one. Hey, Chris, after you answer, we've got a couple questions to go through. Great. Just want to emphasize that notion that prototypes are a, means of communication, not argument, or people constantly ask for things that they don't really mean, and to focus the conversation on that versus saying, great, I'm gonna go build something based on what you just said, and what you build comes back, and they see a little bit of what they said, but they see your expertise applied, it, it's a, it greases the skid. In two seconds, and the other difference too is instead of spending like two hours arguing about it, just go build the thing and put it in their hands. You know, once you put it in their hands, let them play with it, they'll figure out which one's right, right? And what they thought was right may not actually be what the end solution is, but put it in their hands, let them play around with it. Uh, wh where do you draw the line between a wireframe and a pr pr prototype? What do you mean by a wireframe versus a prototype? <laughs> well, uh, uh, you're saying that uh, 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 when you have a prototype, uh, it'll have, it could have limited functionality. So I was thinking you could, you could have a continuum. On one end, you would have a fully, something that was slick and everything worked. On the other hand, you go to something where you could see a representation of all the functionality, but nothing actually worked. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if you that's ask, a wireframe. Well, here's the deal. If you ask me to answer that question just from my own like, personal perspective, as far as I'm concerned, everything's a prototype 
that's actually not out there shipped in customers' hands. Um, I, I personally do everything from paper prototyping, um, where it's sketching on paper, to where we'll take wireframes that a client gave us and use those for paper prototyping, all the way to stuff like this, which is a lot more interactive. But it gets back to the, the earlier issue I brought up as far as determining what you're trying to get feedback on. And so there may be certain cases where a, a wireframe can actually be cut up and made into a paper prototype and get feedback that way. I mean, it, it depends on what your goal is. Uh, well, first of all, I would agree with Todd and say, you know, I think a wireframe is just another type of prototype. Um, but that aside, uh, I think it's really just a question of, you know, if you're asking, you know, something that's interactive versus something that's static, the fundamental questions, you know, there are this, basically these factors you're going to be looking at. One is time. What are your skill sets? And what is it that you need to communicate? And that's probably maybe the most important. So, you know, one of the reasons that I've been, you know, I, I used to start using, I mean, that's where I started doing a bunch of, you know, static wireframes back in the day. And, uh, and I, you know, I still do early on in the design process. But because the designs, the many designs that many of us here are, are working on, they're too complex to be able to communicate the actual concept in a wireframe. And even if we're talking about you know, a series of wireframes, it is much more effective to just to add interactivity. So the, really what it, the core of that is you know, the choice between a wireframe and a prototype, as it were, in terms of the, the, the way you know, the question. Um, it's really a question of can I, what do I need to be able to communicate this idea? And if this, in order to communicate and allow them to evaluate the idea, because ultimately, can they evaluate? Can they evaluate it based on seeing something static? Or do they need to see something interactive in order to be able to evaluate and say, yes, no, let's go in direction A, direction B? And I'll get to you, I'll pass in just a second. Uh, I think a lot of it, too, is uh, it, it's, it's a question of ROI. What's the least amount of effort and time I need to put in for the audience? that I'm delivering to, for them to understand my concept. And if I'm dealing with another IA, it's sketches on a piece of paper. If it's an executive, they tend to be a little more visual. I may have to go to, you know, something like this or, like, you know, fully Photoshopped out, really sexy with, like, Web 2.0 gradients and other stuff. So a lot of it is about audience and context and what you're trying to communicate. And then, you know, how much, what's my level of effort into that to get the return I need on it? I agree with the points that have been said. I want to emphasize this notion of not necessarily communication. I think that's the wrong uh, term to get at this nuance. It's what do you create that allows somebody to either experience or assess an aspect? So Anders' note or uh, emphasis on assessing. Are they able to experience something versus, again, this notion of description or communication? If you make a wireframe and you try to describe what the interaction would be, that is not a prototype. It's a, it's a sketch. It's a mock-up, if you will. For me, the fundamental notion of a prototype is some level that you let it go into the other hands of somebody else, and they assess it based on whatever simple interaction you give them. But they have to be able to try it in some way. Okay, I, I actually have two questions uh, for the gentleman on the right. Um, as far as HTML prototyping, as opposed to Visio paper prototyping, Azure, iRise, you have to, you don't want to spend all your time building prototypes. You're an information architect. I don't, I can do some of it. What techniques have you used to reduce your time prototyping 
I understand your example of grabbing a calendar from the web. That was great. But that skill that let you do that in an hour was probably beyond a lot of the people in this room. What tricks have you used to help you in that endeavor? Well, I can basically speak to when I started out doing, you know, XHTML prototyping and essentially the prototypes were similar to what some of the stuff we'll look at, the thing we showed or things we'll look at in a little bit, but they were just much more stripped down. So essentially where I started out, well, I was doing XHTML prototyping earlier on, but I see that as something very different. With the XHTML prototyping, my starting point was really just to learn about, you know, core content structure and just learning about, you know, really just the first step being getting the content on the page in a structured form and not really thinking that much about design and then working with either if you're working with a graphic designer or whatever, you know, starting to think about the, the, the grid. So, and maybe they can be, it, part of it, it's, it's a question of the skill set of your team and, you know, and all these other factors I was saying, you know, how much time and so forth you, know, you have. But for me, when I started out, it was really, the, the prototypes were just very, very simple so that was sort of the way that I would uh, address the issue of that I was also very, very new at it. And now having done this for, I don't know, I think for almost as long as XHTML has been around, um, you know, obviously you have a trajectory of being able to get more and more and more advanced. But yeah, that's to me that the short answer is just keeping it very, very simple because ultimately if it takes you too much time, then it's not worth it. So do something. Do make take, take that smallest step that you can take within your skill set that allows you to in some way externalize your idea and then initiate that conversation. You had a second question? Or? Were you going to add yeah, let me just say, I'll try to be quick. Uh, there's a book called uh, Serious Play by Michael Schrage. Um, one of the few books, Michael Schrage is one of the few people who has written about prototyping for a long time across all dimensions. Um, and he and I would argue, I would argue you should never try to, except for getting better at things and doing things faster, don't try to minimize the amount of prototyping is done in the world. The world has become analytical and verbal with stuff that can be easily written or described verbally, and we've totally lost the ability to make things quickly to assess them. And it's a different mode of communication that we've lost. And so uh, we're not, on, on this panel, we can't talk about less prototyping. It's all, about, <laughs> it's all about encouraging you actually to access these tools and even though you're an information architect, um, to start learning some of the things to put, putting out there, even if you're bad at it, this is one of the things why people don't do it, is they feel like, well, I can't draw, so I'm not gonna draw. I can't prototype, I'm not gonna prototype. It all starts in a simple, very simple way. Just like we have business people making things. They laugh at the beginning of those workshops. Hi, I've never, I haven't drawn since kindergarten. Chuckle, chuckle, I haven't made anything. And by the end of the day, they're damn proud of what they've done and the conversations that ensued. Well, and really quick, there are, there are a couple of tools that you can use like Fireworks and Dreamweaver that make at least some basic level prototyping, you know, pretty idiot proof. I mean, even like with Dreamweaver, you can have an HTML page bring in a JPEG, draw some hotspots on it, and make them clickable to go through. Like we've got some clients that like when they want to do testing on a prototype, all they have is a bunch of Photoshop files. We're like fine, send us the Photoshop files. We'll hook up some like really quick and dirty hotspot HTML image map things, and we can use those. So you know, it, 
with some tools like that, you can at least do some basic prototyping. It doesn't have to be to the extent of this, but you can start there, get comfortable, and kind of work your way up. Um, my other question is about paper prototyping, which I use to explore spaces. When do you, uh, just any insight you have into this, when does that start to break down? Um, when, when, when is the decision made, I can't get any more out of paper? Like, and when do you go from paper to something else? Yeah, why would you um, I'll be honest, for me personally, it's a tough call because I, I can personally go so far into paper with stuff. Um, like if you ever take the workshop, that I, by the end of it, these guys, I've actually got them paper prototyping social web 2.0 sites that have like comment feedback stuff in it. It's, it's, it's a trip. Um, and they don't think they can do it, but they can by the end of the day. Um, but I've been doing that for a while, and I've built up a bunch of different techniques for it. Uh, for most people, I think it, it really starts at just the basic interactions. Am I heading down the right direction? Yes. Okay, then you stop there and you go into something else. I mean, for me, paper prototyping or just any type of, you know, that uh, kind of the evolution of going to a higher, higher level of fidelity, it's a question of when am I no longer learning anything more? When is no, this no longer providing me with a constructive answer? So, you know, at a very, at the very early stage, uh, you have this, you know, this notion in prototyping or in design in general of marginal benefit. So in terms of paper prototyping, a very small amount of time, very high value. But then as we've evolved our design, and now we've, we've gotten beyond that stage of just generally knowing where things are going to be, and generally getting a sense of this clicking, and now we're getting, getting into, well, what about, you know, this, should it be this label or that label? You know what, I can't read that because, you know, your handwriting is really bad or whatever. Maybe we need to move on to something a little more higher fidelity. So it's just, for me, the short answer is when it no longer is, is telling you anything about your design. It, it sounds like there's this, um, there's, Seems like there's there's two streams going on here. One is where you're exploring stuff and seeing how the experience works um, as you're working on the design. It seems like there's a the distinction with the wireframes is there's a break between the prototyping becoming the prototype becoming the final product, which is the document of itself, versus the documentation you have to do for the build phase. And I think Nathan, I had a question. As you've adopted prototyping as a very core part of your design practice, how have you blended with, replaced? or really made it complementary to any of the other artifacts that you produce to really communicate the expectations to the builders of what they're responsible to build, complex annotations, business rules, and so on, and, and what kind of tricks or tips do you have about how to amplify or really really improve the way you're communicating that design in conjunction with other artifacts? So um, with every project that we start off, that's one of our first issues we address with the client. We try and figure out what their environment is. Are they a very document-rich environment? They rely on PDFs, they pass around and make comments on blah, blah, blah. Or um, are they more of an, an engineering-focused company that, you know, is going to build something? And we've had cases where we kick off a project with a client because we say, look, they, they say, well, what do you guys deliver? I'm like, well, it depends on what you need and what your resources are. We can – our deliverable is going to be one of two paths, right? It's going to be this wireframe deck, and we give them an example and show how it's got, you know, screenshots and storyboards and behavior notes. Or we can do, like, this HTML prototype piece. And then the HTML prototype piece is either going to be a throwaway or in some cases, like the stuff we're doing for City, it actually is a production-level prototype because they don't have front-end engineers, and you don't want back-end engineers writing presentation layer code. Um, so that's kind of what drives drives us down that path. Um, and we've got some clients that we still don't do a whole lot of prototyping for because they're very document-rich, and so we 
do PDFs and wireframes. Um, we've had a couple of clients, like some small startups. We start out with PDFs. They build the HTML prototype. They send it to us. We're like, oh, God. And then we go in and, like, rewrite a bunch of the HTML and CSS and fix it and send it back to them. And then their response is, we didn't know you guys could do that, even though we told them that up front. And then they're so happy with it. They're like, could we actually change the engagement so now you guys are just providing the presentation layer and we'll just do the back end? And we're like, yeah. So a lot of it really is knowing the environment that you're going into. Um, and then, honestly, for us, all I can say is that the specific engagement, it tends to be one or the other. The artifacts that go into it up front, like the personas and that type of thing, that doesn't really change. But but uh, as far as, like, bringing the wireframes together with the prototype or what? Well, for us, so far, it's pretty much been mostly mutually exclusive. I can say with this prototype, to be honest, we did do a few wireframe sketches up front. We did, like, five or six screens to kind of, hey, here's the vision, um, just because we had some pre-existing frameworks and we knocked something out really fast. And then after, yeah, you're on the right path, then we just went right to HTML. I just want to say that this is a huge opportunity for the thought leaders in the room that requirements – Writing is broken in the software industry. It's a horrible way to develop product. Uh, Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, had me out there uh, because they're struggling with creating user-centered stuff in this day and age of lock the requirements down before you give it to engineering. This is a corrupt and fundamentally flawed way to build things. So whoever's out there that can start making those connections and delivering prototypes along with written, it's a huge opportunity. It's totally broken and everybody still does it that way. And uh, we're actually fortunate right now that the work we're doing with City, um, they're actually pushing us to build the prototypes faster so that their BAs can actually use them to write the requirements, which is a trip for us because in the past it's here's your requirements, go build a prototype, which is totally broken. So we are fortunate that we've got one client, just one, we're working on more, but just one that has gotten to the point where they actually are using our prototype to write the requirements, which is a huge relief for me. And just from like a, I don't know, from like just a personal accomplishment standpoint, I'm like, yeah, it feels good to actually be doing it the right way. So as far as, you know, artifacts goes or how the, the change has been from my vantage point, um, so I came from a practice where essentially I was producing 150-page, 200-page uh, specification documents uh, with, you know, annotations, wireframes, the whole nine yards. And, you know, what would happen would be that would take a long time to produce, uh, and we'd send it off, you know, be some offshore team or something, and, you know, they'd work on it, and, you know, work on it, and work on it, and work on it, and then we'd see something, and it wasn't really, actually sometimes it wasn't at all what, you know, my understanding had been of what, what you know, my static wireframes and my annotations was going to be. And so this was maybe five or six years ago. And um, so now, instead, what I'm doing is the prototyping is, the, is also the specification. And so, and I think th this is a weird, I think uh, developers, for developers, this term makes a lot of sense. But on the business side, it, they kind of think it's kind of strange. But it's, it's self-documenting in some ways. And what I mean by that is that actually, why don't we pull up the um, the other yeah, the one that was up before? Uh, no, the one that. Anders, uh, hey, why you why you talk yeah, about this? Yeah. Um, there seems the to be a distinction here. Like on one side, we're using prototypes for exploration, yeah. but you're using them actually to drive towards product fidelity. So what's? I mean, okay. obviously, the exploration phase isn't 
doesn't become self-documenting, right? Okay, so well, there are two kind of two different levels in terms of what's going on. Yes, early on, it's it's not about it's not really a specification. It it does evolve into specification. At first, it's sketches and whatever, but in this case, you know, for using XHTML. But I I do need to actually take. I want to stop and say this is not all just about XHTML. Um, you know, you have other environments. I mean, I, I think it's important really here to mention uh, Adobe. How many people here are familiar with Adobe Thermo or the or the, the project? So Adobe Thermo essentially is, is a really groundbreaking breaking concept where essentially you can go into Photoshop and you, I can draw, um, I can take, create a square like a text box and I can draw another box and say this is a button and then I can draw, I can take one rectangle here and then a smaller rectangle there and say this is a scroll bar and then I can, that can be imported into Thermo and essentially I've, Basically created. I've, what I've created in Photoshop uh, has then can be consumed by a Flex developer into something that is machine readable, structured, and has you know all those elements that they can actually go out and build this using the, the Air framework or something like that. So this is not just about uh, XHTML, but I think XHTML is a great. Um, for me, it's very representative of, of many of these ideas. So getting back to what you were saying earlier, you know, going from the evolution of the early uh, prototype that's more conceptual, we don't really care so much about the IDs and, and all this stuff that's going on, the self-documenting stuff, to the evolution of what we're looking at here, which is, and I've actually, this is somewhat stripped down, but this is a um, tracking system for essentially, so what MediaMorph does, the, product, the startup that I work for, um, we basically are building software for uh, film studios for tracking uh, sales, uh, for example, all their information that they get from like Juice and iTunes and Amazon and Hulu and all those. And so essentially what's, what this is for, this is an auditing tool where we have analysts that look at these and they need to, um, they need to essentially make sure that all these records are clean and at a very high level, rather than I didn't want to, go, I'm not going to go into the details of how this works. But at a high level, their goal is to get rid of all the colored boxes. Um, obviously, there's a lot more going on than that. But so that's sort of their goal. So um, I actually wanted to just, I'm going to talk a little bit about. Did, we thought we'd just walk through this, and then I can give an example of what I, some examples of what I meant by sort of self-documenting, because this is actually a pr the prototype that went to the developers and they built the real actual functioning product from this, and the only additional information that I provided to them was uh, a write-up. We used a uh, base camp, so in write-up, I wrote a message with a bunch of bullet points that said, oh, by the way, uh, the pagination, this is a spec for the pagination, and a few bullet points about that, and here's a spec for this part, and like, uh, when you click on the, the header, it should sort, and, you know, and, and that was it. So, but let me, I'm going to walk through this a little bit and then I'm going to get into a couple more details where there's this very, very crisp connecting point in terms of documentation with, uh, between the business and technology. So, here we have somebody, we want to clean up a record and we've seen that record number two, actually, quick on record number two. Record number two, we want to, we want to clean that up. So, we select that, we get some additional options up there, so let's go click on edit. Um, so, okay, so here, one of the interesting things that happened, I think something that I wanted to point out that Todd had uh, talked about earlier uh, was initially uh, the customer had said, uh, we always need to see all the other records. 
So I said, fine. So I showed them a version that shows that record that you're going to be editing and all the records. But then they saw, they're like, oh my god, that's really busy. I don't want to see all the other records. So uh, type in a breakout. I think it's dash breakout. So I said, so during the session, I just deleted that. They're like, oh, yeah, 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 that, that's great. So another thing that had been happening as well here with this was, and I think this came up earlier, was um, you had this thing where you were editing sort of an individual item. So um, we had a similar situation with an application where they've got these errors that occur um, in some files. And so this is inline editing. They've got one thing they need to fix. You click on it, you get inline editing, blah, blah, blah. You go through, you can update it, and then like, the screen reloads, and, and so on and so forth. Um, this is a little different than, than uh, Android's example because for this system, they've got one thing they need to edit, and that's it. So, you know, click inline edit, works really nice, it's kind of sexy, they like it. So, so for our user, what they've been saying, that's how they wanted it. They want, I want to just be able to, to be able to go and click on those, on the color boxes. I just be able to click on that color box and, and, and change that. And then click on this other color box here and here and here and here and here. And so I, we actually, I don't have that, but we actually created a version of that. And then they realized, uh, that's really, uh, really not very efficient. And something that we discovered instead, or that they realized was, Working the normal way they won't work is they they type and they tab they type and they tab type and tab type and tab and type and tab is not something that you can reveal for example in a wireframe you know getting to this earlier question of a wireframe uh, type and tab is something that's going to be intrinsic to um, at least you know HTML or a Flash if it's implemented in a certain way and so that to me is an essential element of why, why you'd want a prototype. So just as one last item, and I don't know if you can do, um, just click on save. <laughs> click on the save, save up there. Right down, 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 to the left. Need to do some usability testing there. Okay, so here, um, right, I mean, just to really to point out, just as a stepping back a little bit, this obviously, I'm sure, looks just super, super crazy busy to somebody. I mean, for somebody who's not seen this, it's coming totally out of context. We have to keep in mind that this is something that is contextualized within the application. So I'm kind of jumping right into the middle of an app here because uh, I just didn't want to take up the time to walk through how this gets built up and where these records come from. But um, do what can we do? Uh, view source. Uh, just go ahead and scroll down. <laughs> yeah, that clears it up right there. Uh, yeah, do um, type in replacement. So, okay. So here, and this is this connecting, very key connecting point between business rules and, so we have business and technology and the way that they're connected. So right here, this is the terminology that's being used by the business. This is how they describe this particular state of this type of record, it's, re it's been reconciled and adjusted. So what's happening here is that I, as an IA, am not, I'm going into the markup and creating that connecting point between uh, you know, technology and the business in a way that it sort of it creates a very, very crisp uh, bridge between those two domains in a way that I think it's very common that something like that can become lost. So you end up in a situation where technology is using this one set of terminology and the business is using another terminology and there's all this noise in the communication. 
And of course, this doesn't always work for all projects. I mean, some, you know, I, I, if we're not doing XHTML or whatever, but in this particular situation, it worked really well. And I think it's more of a way of thinking in terms of uh, creating that bridge in terms of that technology and the business are using the same terminology, the same language. So did this, I, I sort of got into, this is an example of a bit of documentation and one other advantage, because Anders and I were talking about this earlier, one other advantage about this is in the source code, you can put the business language, but on the presentation, like the interface that the customer or the end user sees, you can use a customer-friendly label. So, you know, the business gets their goal accomplished, which is, well, here's my jargon, but the customer doesn't actually have to deal with that. So on the, on the, the interface level, you can actually have a completely different label, but the source code can use your internal jargon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, I just have a question about clients. So I love the idea of... This is a prototyping panel, Dave. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So uh, getting back to the client. Now, you had made a, a, a statement that I, I don't hear often is that clients should be prototyping. You want to get them in and have them. I love the example of the PowerPoint, right? Um, how do you avoid the situation where the client comes in, she worked in PowerPoint all night last night preparing for the meeting, and she loves her design? So how do you set the stage to where she's going to be, she knows that you're just playing around, right? Yeah, so you find a different client? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This is, this is I think uh, you put people in the right context, you treat them with respect, and you do your part of it, and you start to build a collaborative relationship. So those workshops that you saw uh, that we do with the client, first of all, they start to understand how hard it was to put together that communication visually, right? Um, there's some information that when she's presenting that or at least a collaboration about what was she hoping to achieve and you're like, yes, excellent, nice. And your response is not to fix hers to make it the right thing. Your response is to elicit information and to understand the problem. You're using it as a vehicle for discussion, a vehicle for thinking. Then when you come back the next week, after that workshop, what we do is we apply expertise to those things. And we come back the next week and show them something for review. We absolutely refer to what they built. So in that prototype that you built, you had these two principles you were really struggling with. Here's a couple options for handling it. And all of a sudden, you guys are co-creating the solution by applying your expertise where it needs to be, but absolutely welcoming their initiatives. Now, people do totally get fall in love with their idea, but that's part of the process you kind of got to work through. We had one engineer who had built, who had never built something in foam core, and he had built this little mechanism that allowed the print head to go up and down. And literally at the end of the day at the workshop, he was sitting there staring at it with this grin on his face of just like, we said, Stan, what are you doing? You know, I just love this, right? And you're, you love what you've created. Okay, designers have that same problem. And so what you can do is empathize with that and say, yeah, you know what, I don't want to let go of my designs either and blah, 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 and use a little humor in that give and take. But that's an essential part of the process that I think a lot of people are missing. We have like a Great segue example. question here. And I think one other thing too is um, you can take what they've got, try and keep the core concept that's there. And like with this, you know, we sat down with a person that put it together. Um, and it's okay, well, so I see what you've got. Can you talk me through what kind of drove this, and, and maybe it's the final design, maybe it's not, but, but what, you know, what's important for me to understand as a researcher and designer is what went into creating this, and then we can decide whether, collectively, together, we can decide whether or not that's the best 
delivery method. And it may be, you know, you should tell them that up front. This may actually, you know, this could totally work. There's some interesting things here, like this is a dashboard, right? You guys notice the thermometer on the right, which is their capacity? Because like a car dashboard has a thermometer on it, which is where that came from. They also get into these like different levels um, and they use, uh, uh, what are the three levels of gas are, like super, premium, and so there's all these like undertone like automobile things, because there was, yeah, there was like some male engineer that kind of put these ideas together. Um, so you, you, and you know, I tell them, hey, maybe we can keep the automobile theme and maybe dress it up a little bit, right? Um, so you kind of, you, know, you you kind of start with that play on it a little bit, and then you can go off and maybe work up a second installment of this, and again, Put it in their hands, let them play with it for a few days, and then typically if you do that, they'll come back and they'll say either they want to stick to theirs, which is rare, or, you know what, actually I was playing around with what you put together, and I like a few things about it. And you may need to preserve some of their stuff, but a lot of times you can incorporate you know, some of your, your, your better design into it. I have a question just based on my own experience with these high-fidelity prototypes with having to do with the concept of doneness. And from my experience, there are three problems. A, it kind of shuts down the business's creativity. They'll see something that looks pretty good, and they sort of shut down their own ideas. And the other problem is that to them it looks finished. And so when you hand it off to developers and it takes another three months, the business is confused why that is when it's already done. And the other question is, when I do these high-fidelity prototypes, my code frankly sucks and I'll have developers take it and just use my code and kind of tweak it a little bit and then we have this very unstable unreliable thing in production which is yeah, scary that, that's a huge issue um, and in fact especially the, the last point where you've got really crappy code that ends up in production um, and you can't avoid that 100% um, what we try and do to avoid that up front is we ask the client, is this something that, you know, we're willing to throw away or is the end intent going to be for production? If the end intent is that it's going to be in production, then either you need to write better code or you need to find somebody that's going to do it. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, but just be, like, Anders and I actually last year were talking about uh, some prototyping work, and he said to me, quite frankly, he was like, I just want to be clear that the code I'm going to write is not production-level code. It's going to need to be rewritten. And I was like, that's fine. He goes, no, no, I want to be clear about this. And I was like, dude, I get it. He's like, I just want to make sure that we're clear. Um, and part of it literally is, you know, set that expectation. You can kind of be joking about it. Like, just to be clear, by the way, uh, my code is like, I can make it look kind of cool, but you really don't want to use the underlying code. It's not going to be that good. Um, so that's one way to address it. Um, as far as doneness, yeah, like the, the, uh, the, the prototype I was talking about earlier that was probably the sickest prototype we've ever had a chance to test that was this incredibly rich Ajax interface at drag and drop. Um, it, it almost backfired on the company that built it because they, well, they spent nine months building this thing, and it was amazing. I mean, it, I almost thought I was dealing with a desktop application. This thing was phenomenal. Um, none of the code could be reused. And so, of course, the execs that bought into this entire design couldn't figure out why now it was going to take engineering two and a half years to build a thing. Oh, my gosh, you guys prototyped it in nine months. Like, can't we just, you know, it should be done like three weeks later. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. So a lot of it, honestly, is setting expectations up front, being very, very clear about it. Um, and don't be shy about that. If you, you, I found that if you set the expectation with the client that it's not going to be production level, they're okay with that. 
they, you know, they're a little iffy at first and maybe a little upset. But if you set that expectation up front, they're going to be a lot less pissed off than when you don't set that. And then they get it and they're like, well, what were you doing for the last three months and I can't reuse this? So uh, as a follow-up to that, um, reusable code or you know, throwing away your, your code when you get to the final development, where do you build in design into this process um, since you know, prototypes should be basically black and white without design and you're looking at the interaction? Where do you build that design layer in so that what you're actually building in the end is fully designed with CSS and, and everything uh, to the right creative level? So um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that because for me, design is the whole thing. But I'm, I'm going to expect that what you mean by that is like visual design versus you – know, okay, okay. Because I, I lump them all together, but um, I, it depends on, again, like what the, 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 the end goal and intent is. Um, that little setup application I showed earlier, it's an internal application. The visual design that's there is just some basic CSS stuff that we did. Um, and so, you know, for us – like, we didn't really intend that to be the, the final visual design, but, you know, it's decent enough to use for an internal application, so it's, you know, it's no big deal, and, and the client was fine with that. Um, on the flip side, this guy, which is an, another application that we did for them. Um, I hope this doesn't break. Yeah, so we actually started this out in black and white, and then we did a whole visual design for it, and then City sent us their branding guideline, so we had to, like, recode the whole entire thing. Uh, but part of it, it's, it's a very iterative process. So we, again, we set the expectation up front that we're going to kind of work through the interactions, get kind of the fundamental design down, and at some point in there, I can't tell you when, but at some point, we'll switch over and hook up the visual design once we make sure we're going down the right path. For us, a lot of times, it's like around maybe you get 60 to 70% of the interaction down, and then we'll actually go into, you know, throwing in colors and stuff. Um, but even in our black and white, Prototypes, we will use color selectively for error messages and, you know, success stuff and, and those types of things, or to, to visually make a distinction between um, default actions and kind of secondary actions. So we will use color or shading or weight or something to emphasize those. Uh, but for us, usually it's like around the 60 to 70% mark, and then we go into visual design and, and kind of go back and, and adjust it. Um. Just a second, what Todd was saying about design being holistic. I mean, I'm a firm believer that there really isn't any separation between, uh, you know, if we talk about information architecture, visual design, uh, all these other elements. They're, they're very much intertwined, and you can't really say that one is necessarily separate from the other. So from my vantage point, I don't necessarily think of it as being starting with something that's just, you know, black and white or whatever. It's really a question of inserting into your prototype or wireframe or what, whatever you call it, um, sufficient information or sufficient elements that communicate whatever it is that you want to communicate. If that need requires color, if it requires a gradient, if it requires whatever it is that it requires to communicate the design, then it needs to go in there. Or, or conversely, you know, remove things that are that are creating noise. So, I think for me, the only point where I may say that there might be a, sort of a dividing line is talking less about visual design and not visual design and talking more about branding and not branding. So we may have a branded versus an unbranded prototype. And that's because both of them are going to have all those, uh, well, to go the Norman terms, or all the affordances, all those things that communicate the design. But 
the only distinction between the brand is that we may use a different color scheme or something like that, but we're still communicating all that. Okay, well, we've got 10 minutes left, so I've got two questions that I think will wrap things up well. Um, and then we'll be having tea afterwards, and they have insisted that they will stand right outside so you can hound them for as long as you like. The rest of your questions. Um, the first question. Thanks, guys. I think I'm one of the IAs in the room who's been using Visio uh, for the last five years. I got a certificate in web design and development in 2003 that taught me HTML, CSS, um, and uh, ASP or whatever the server code was. And I've basically been managing teams for the last, you know, six years. But I would love to be able to learn Ajax or Flex or Flash or some code that is more in this interactive realm that allow, allows me to, you know, go to a client and overnight show a concept that moves. Which technology do you guys recommend for the IAs in the room who are, you know, literally Visio folks who well, are, you know, going I, th I mean, I think many of us probably could speak to that as well, but I could probably speak to that since I use I've, I guess I've used Visio for maybe 10 years, so that's where I came from. I was using Visio before it was even a Microsoft product, so um, which kind of date, dates me a little bit. Um, so um, in line with that, for me, the way that I made the transition was just, you know, getting my hands dirty. And it's really, it's not a question of a specific technology because everybody here has a unique organizational situation, a unique team, a unique need, a unique project. It's about just kind of getting your hands dirty in the actual technology in which the product will actually be built. And it's for the same reason that you see, you know, you know, architecture students with the little hard hats on going out to the to the lot and walking around in the mud and you know looking at the you know you know with the foreman there and you know playing around with it. They're not they're not engineers. They're actually not building, but they're out there and they're really literally getting their hands dirty. And it's really the same. It's a question of just doing it. And and you know, for me, what made sense and with the timing was just XHTML, CSS, and then adding JavaScript eventually. Uh, and, and starting very simple, but you know, I, I yeah, for me, it's, and, but it could also be Flash if that's you know maybe you're in a more brand, maybe you're in an agency situation and it's more you're doing more consumer focused or more brand focused products. Maybe Flash and Flex or, or you know when um, Adobe releases uh, you know their new uh, the new product. Uh, so I wouldn't I would be very hesitant to to recommend a specific. Uh, technology for me personally, what worked was XHTML and CSS, and just buying a ton of books and just doing it, and you know maybe building your own website and just you know getting your hands dirty. So I actually, I've got a, a guy we just hired about a month ago that has some basic HTML and CSS experience. Um, I'm kind of lazy or efficient, whichever way you want to look at it. And so we use frameworks for pretty much everything that we do. We've got like a whole XHTML CSS framework that every project starts off with, like a core piece. So what I did with him, gave him that core framework. We did a little kind of collaborative design session for an afternoon. We sketched out like, you know, hey, we, let's say we're going to make a company blog. This is actually what we did. Um, you know, we went out, collected some resources, and then kind of like cut them up and made some little, you know, uh, uh, like mood boards. And then we together sketched out what the design might look like, and then I gave it to him. I walked him through our framework and said, build that. And tomorrow, I want like three or four screens from the framework. 
just boxes, type, you know, don't have to put any content in, but just the boxes you sketch on the screen, I want you to build that with a framework. And I kind of walked him through the framework a little bit, and the next day I came in, and yeah, it wasn't perfect, but he got the idea, and so we're kind of slowly, it's one step at a time. And so like, like, like for me, one of these things is go look at a, a piece you want to maybe simulate or mimic. You know, you take an example, and then you, you know, if you've got basic HTML and CSS skills, start by trying to rebuild that yourself, right? And then if you want to get into some AJAX stuff, um, yeah, I don't care which library you use. Probably the, the, the two slash three that are the most popular and have lots of examples and are pretty well documented are Prototype and Scriptaculous. Like that's kind of like one package. Um, and then jQuery. Both, if you go out and like start Googling those, the nice thing is that they have a lot of examples, lots of source code, and lots of little plugins. So you can basically go out, grab the source code, see the example, take your little HTML, CSS file that you put together and plug it in and try and figure out how to make it work or not. But the, the point is, you gotta get your hands dirty, you gotta just do it. It's really scary the first couple times you did it, um, but after a while you get a little more and more comfortable and just you just have to go try it. Okay, the, the last question, um, that was about how you ramp up on skills. The last question, if I'm translating it correctly, is in your organization, how do you move into prototyping without stepping on um, the toes of the other people who have their own processes, like the developers, the designers. You kind of touched on design, but how do you do prototyping within a large complex environment? You don't. You don't do it without stepping on people's toes. So you gotta learn how to manage it when you do step on people's toes. Okay, that's my input. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> that, that's uh, exactly my experience um, with the large uh, electronics company. You know, we go to meetings, have not arguments, but questions. Should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? Differences of opinion from client to management to us as designers. A month later, we're revisiting that same issue. And so finally, I had to start taking these little slices of things. What, what I, wait, I showed you was the big whole working prototype. On the side, I would throw together really sloppy looking screens without all the polish and functionality that were addressing the one single issue we were debating about. And it wasn't on my to-do list or anything, but you know, you take couple hours sometime instead of going to a meeting or doing something else. And when you show up and you do it in the right spirit, that's not all, hey, look how cool I am, this is the right thing, but rather, hey, I find it took a few minutes to put that thing together that we've been talking about for a month. What does everyone think now that we can actually see it in action? And, you know, generally the response is positive. So. Yeah, I mean, I think to, to Chris's point, you are going to step on some toes. You just try and manage that and minimize as much as possible. Um, like, like the the work we're doing with City, they have an internal creative director. Um, they're actually having us implement the visual design, which kind of is kind of insulting to him. But um, you know, we just try. What I do in that process is we're going through things. So, Michael, is this like the right implementation? So, even though he's not doing the work, he actually has say. Um, and honestly, we will intentionally make some visual design mistakes. Intentionally, it's a strategic thing so that he can go, actually, no, um, that button needs to be, I'm like, oh, okay, great. So he still feels like he's providing value to the equation. Um, and the other thing is, at the same time, is the, the back engineers, usually, you'll be surprised, in most cases, the guys that do back-end development don't even want to touch the front end. They don't want to be held responsible for it. They don't want to be the fall guy. So you come in with, by the way, we're going to actually give you the presentation layer and you guys just plug in the back end to it. Um, those guys don't like to write code, period. So the fact that they have to write less code is a good thing. 
but you are going to step on some toes, and it's just trying to, you know, from a strategic standpoint, figure out how to, to, to minimize that as much as possible. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Um, like I said, they'll be outside. If you have any more questions.